This episode of the JomoCast is sponsored by Freedom. Freedom is an easy-to-use app that allows you to block distractions across all of your devices to work and live distraction-free. Visit freedom.to slash Jomo to learn more. Welcome to the JomoCast. I'm your host, Christina Crook. Join us as we sit down with leading founders, creators, and thought leaders to learn how they embrace the joy of missing out. These guests are choosing to digitally detox and usher balance into their busy lives. Let's dive right in. In the 1980s South African movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, a member of an isolated tribe living in the Kalahari Desert discovers a soda bottle, an object he's never seen before. Having no idea of the bottle's intended purpose, he and his people create dozens of uses for it, ultimately leading to jealousy and tribal discord as they fight over access to this wondrous tool. Distraught by the suffering this divine object has brought to his society, the protagonist travels to the edge of the world, where he returns the bottle to the gods, with a polite, thanks, but no thanks, before returning to his family and community. The story is relatable to where we find ourselves today with technology in so many ways. Distant and inscrutable masters of technology have dropped unfathomably powerful objects whose creation and inner workings we don't understand from the sky in our laps, mostly apparently for free, ostensibly for our pleasure and enrichment. They allow us to do things unprecedented in our human experience. And yet we're unhappier and unhealthier than ever. We're at each other's throats. We sometimes scarcely recognize our cultures and values. It's no wonder so many of us are beginning to wonder if maybe we should take Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to the edge of the world and chuck them off a cliff to miss out. But there's another angle too, one that our next guest has some vital thoughts on. In the movie, the tribesman Z's problems began with using a soda bottle for something other than holding soda. The intent of the object's designers and the end users that consumed it didn't overlap. Suddenly, the limitations of the object became cataclysmic for a peaceful, harmonious society. It had taken on a destructive power far beyond that worthy of a piece of trash dropped carelessly from a window. My guest today is Jay Vidyarthi. Jay was one of the creators of Muse, a headband utilizing biofeedback to guide and train meditation that introduced thousands of beginners to an accessible world of mindfulness practice. He's also had a hand in the development and strategic launch of more than a dozen other apps and event platforms, connecting consumers around the world to mindfulness technologies and communities. As an important companion to this impressive CV, though, Jay is also on the board of America Offline, a nonprofit organization of tech leaders working hard to expand the presence of offline social, educational, and vocational experiences, especially for American children, and continues to develop and advise the Healthy Minds Program, the University of Madison, Wisconsin's world-renowned research institute, exploring the mind-body connection of lifelong health and well-being. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jay Vidyarthi. How about, in your own words, you tell me what you do? I 
uh, am a designer and I apply the design process to create technologies and platforms and communities that bring more mental health, well-being, and mindfulness into the world. So I work on exclusively on projects focused on personal transformation and, um, you know, finding a sense of presence in daily life, bringing that kind of Silicon Valley type skill set to startups and nonprofits who might be, you know, they might care more about mental health and mindfulness than they do about technology, but that doesn't mean they, they couldn't benefit from a, a modern approach to design. Uh, and so the, the kind of design that I practice is often called human-centered design. And in tech circles, they refer to it as user experience. Uh, and from this, I've started, because I'm coming at this from a place of having my own mindfulness practice that's been a huge part of my life, I'm starting to do a little bit of mindfulness teaching, even though I still feel like a student. Um, and so that's actually happening in some of these organizations as well, but that's pretty new. That's pandemic. Pandemic has accelerated that trajectory a little bit. So tell me about some of the projects you've worked on. Maybe we could talk a little bit about Muse. Um, yeah, we can start with Muse. So Muse is a brain sensing headband that helps you meditate. So it's kind of a kind of an out there idea. Um, but the idea is a portable and cost effective EEG headband that measures your brainwave. So this is the same technology that you might use in a hospital, but converted into something much more accessible that you can buy at Best Buy as opposed to right. in a hospital room. And it connects to your phone. And my job was to design the meditation experience, which would be the reason why people would actually engage with a headband like this. And went through a whole iterative process to work with individuals and research individuals using early prototypes to try to find the right language and the right metaphors and the right user interfaces and soundscapes and all that stuff to create an experience that felt less like you were using some high-tech platform to self-administer neurofeedback, blah, 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 and more like, hey, this is a great little companion that helps me get a sense of what this meditation thing is all about. Mm. Having spent so many hours creating that experience um, and helping to build the team for it and all that, but also spending so many hours watching people who'd never heard of it interact with it for the first time. I think the, there's two big successes, I think, of the Muse experience. I don't think it's perfect, but I think there's two big successes. One big success is that it very effectively opens people up to a kind of like introspective curiosity that they wouldn't otherwise have. And it does it in a very secular, scientific way. So instead of some guru in robes trying to encourage you to do something that feels a little bit culty, <laughs> right? <laughs> You're using this technology and noticing that when you focus your mind on your breath, your physiological brain state is much different than when your mind is wandering and distracted. And we do have the neuroscience around the default mode network to understand why this is happening. But what it does is it wakes up for people in a kind of unignorable way that the mind is something that is under their control and something they can train, mm. um, which is, I think, one of the big successes. And I think the other big success is that through the process of creating this product, the founders of the company and the team 
all got a lot more into meditation than they were when I joined. <laughs> Interesting. That is a big win. Yeah, that's a big win. Like, I feel like people underestimate that, especially in the tech world. They're thinking about, oh, you know, we want to hit hundreds of thousands, millions of people and go viral. But there's something to be said about depth, not just impact. So I'm, I'm proud that hundreds of thousands of people are using Muse. And, but it has a, you know, on the spectrum of contemplative experience, it has a relatively shallow impact. It just sort of introduces, in my view. Mm -hmm. But the people that I have met on the Muse team, including all three of the founders, um, I kind of watch, watch them a little bit. And they're all so much more well-versed and they have so much more depth in terms of their understanding of mindfulness and their practice of mindfulness than they did when I joined, myself included. And so that's, I think, one of the major things to have come out of that project. Mm. It's making me really want to get a headband <laughs> hearing you talk about it because, you know, I have my own, you know, version of a mindfulness practice, you know, starting in the morning and quiet. I sit down, you know, I have a, a definitely a rhythm or a routine around um, reading in the morning and quiet and reflection and a kind of prayer. Um, but to to put a headband on and to see the changes, you know, visually and making that connection, I think would be incredibly powerful and, and would be a huge motivator to continue doing it. I think of you know, so many of my listeners that used, you know, Headspace or Calm, these different apps, right, to kind of put them into that state. But this feels like it, it takes it another a step further. Yeah. And so I've worked on, I think, a little more than 10 different mindful technologies at this point. And I think of my career as a designer as this kind of iterative process where I'm sort of trying to address some of the things I'm learning as I create more mindful technologies in terms of what are the strengths and the weaknesses of different approaches. I think Muse, one of its failings is that it's, it's most powerful at introducing mindfulness in a completely new way. And there are definitely people who engage with it for years at a time. But um, I think probably the biggest, most pithiest insight comes from like that first week of trying it out. Right. Um, and, and, and beyond that, it sort of becomes a bit of a repetitive experience. And I think the, the general sense of depth that we need to be looking for, especially given the things we're facing in the world and the level of change and transformation that I personally hope to see in the world. And I do have a belief that mindfulness will play a role in that change. We need more than superficiality. So I think that tools like Headspace and Calm and Muse, you know, there are different groups of people that different tools resonate with, but they will all be wonderful introductions to this realm of insight and curiosity about oneself and one's mind. Um, but I'm also now starting to explore tools that might be deeper. Uh, so I've been working with a nonprofit in Wisconsin called Healthy Minds Innovations on an app and a program called the Healthy Minds Program, which on the surface level looks like, you know, another meditation app. But the depth of the actual teaching and the evidence base, because this is paired with one of the most reputable scientific laboratories in the world in terms of the neuroscience of emotion and mindfulness, uh, the depth there is kind of like a new exploration about what about trying to take people a little bit deeper than just focusing on the breath and really trying to connect this to society and every aspect of their life and their relationships and their understanding of who they are 
and their sense of purpose and their sense of values and, and these types of things. So, you know, I can list off other projects that have tackled different areas, but in general, there's no one quick fix or solution. And I really want to caution against that mentality. We're all kind of on our own journey and wherever these tools might arise to help support us, I think at best they're going to help us get to the next step or the next few steps. But ultimately, we have to keep our vigilance if we're aiming for something more than just the superficial, oh, I feel a little bit better and getting to the depth that we need you and me and everyone needs to reach for if our society is going to get back on track. Hmm. What I think I hear you saying is that, you know, all of these tools are starting points, but we need to build the discipline and practice ourselves apart from uh, those tools in the real world. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, like you can take something like nutrition as a metaphor, which is like, there's all kinds of great recipes and there's diets out there and you can read for for years about nutrition, right? And you can get all these tools, special cooking devices and all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, if you compare that with what it takes to actually eat healthy in your life, there's a bit of a gap. And so the tools are very useful, but don't confuse the tools for the ongoing effort and motivation and inspiration and persistence and resilience that you need to really eat healthy for years and years, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same thing with your mind. I want to talk to you a lot today about design because I think most of us don't consider the design principles that go into most of the tools that we use on a regular basis. And I want to share a personal example. When I was studying in university, I took one design course and I was introduced to a book I'm sure you're familiar with, Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things. And I remember yes. being introduced to this radical idea that, in fact, if I have a hard time using a tool of some kind, um, I'm not stupid. But it's just bad design. If you go to reach for a door and, you know, it looks like a door you should, you know, pull open instead of push, that that's actually, you know, that could be a poor design decision. I think that was just a revelation to me. And I think there are design principles at work all the time, like app builders could decide to, you know, put a half second pause before you enter an app, you know, to create a, a moment of, you know, hesitation or peace so that you can, you know, make a more mindful decision about entering that app. What are some design principles that we should be aware of, like on a day-to-day -day basis that'll help us better navigate our relationship with technology? So the way I think about design, I think can be articulated with my favorite definition of design, which comes from Nobel laureate um, Herbert Simon in the 60s. And he said, Everyone designs who devises courses of action change existing situations into preferred situations. Hmm. I'll say that again. Everyone designs who devises courses of action to change existing situations into preferred situations. And when you think about, you know, and I'm reading your question about design principles, and you might be thinking about patterns, and certainly we can talk about notifications as a pattern to command your attention and infinite scroll um, as a pattern to keep you hooked to your phone and 
you know, using social media and social proofing to draw you in. But I think about in terms of like design in our society, right? Organizations are designed, business models are designed, you know, laws are designed, you know, hospitals are designed, and yes, apps are designed, technologies are designed. And so I really strive for something a little bit more unifying in terms of how we think about what might constitute good design. And I mean that both in the sense of enjoyable, engaging design, but also the moral good, good design, right? Mm. And I love this definition because if we break out three pieces of it, so devising courses of action, that's kind of like what you typically think of when you think of design, like the course of action, the craft, you know, someone who's great at AutoCAD or getting on Sketch or Photoshop or whatever, coming up with these concepts and these designs and, you know, figuring out the architecture of something they're creating. These are the tools in the designer's toolbox. These are the courses of action and the strategies that we can take. But there's another really interesting phrase there, which is changing existing situations into preferred situations. And right in there, it encapsulates so much depth that is often missing from the design process. One, how much do we understand the existing situation that we're designing for? Hmm. And two, what is our conceptualization of the preferred situation that we're designing for? So what would success look like? Way too often, you have people who work, whether their title is designer or not, but they're creating something, even if it's a business or a law in government, where they don't know enough and they haven't put enough effort into understanding the existing situation, the real lives of people on the ground, the real issues that are being faced. And way too often, the preferred situation is political gain or financial gain or personal gain in some way, and not a very clear, articulate vision of how we're trying to transform the world with our design work. And so I think, you know, the part of your question about what should people be looking out for, I'm sorry to say it's not as simple as like, hey, I noticed you're using this pattern. It's actually really more, who are the people behind this and why are they creating this, Mm -hmm. right? And you'll find a lot of truth when you look into something like a social media platform. Um, You know, and there's a lot of conversation, the social dilemma on Netflix, this documentary just came out from the Center for Humane Tech. A lot of people talking about social media. And, uh, you know, social media isn't fundamentally bad. It's not a fundamentally evil idea or, a you know, a broken paradigm. But the reality is the organizations that are currently leading the social media are operating off a preferred situation of making themselves rich. And only now are they starting to understand the existing situation of how it's impacting the people uh, the people's lives who are using their social media platforms. So, you know, that's a that's a very high level framing of design that can be applied to everything from, you know, government to healthcare to technology to business to even just rearranging the furniture in your house, right? Mm. What's the preferred situation? What's the problem with the existing situation? And what course of action am I going to take if you want to be effective in that way? And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I love this definition because it democratizes design. Like you could ask that same question to, you know, I have a couple of people in mind, but a lot of my peers who are sort of, you know, in the design field and their answer will be full of jargon about information architecture and interaction design and usability and user experience and, you know, the interface and the dark patterns. And you know what I mean? 
it's like, I get it. I'm yes. a wonk for this stuff. I'm a designer. It's really engaging for me to read that stuff. But for the everyday person, you know, what should you be looking for is you should be looking through the things that you use in your life and say, why? Ask why? Why was this made in this way? Mm. Because it could have been made in other ways. And that's the point you were you were making, that it doesn't have to be this way. So why is it made this way? And that will allow you to vote with your time and say, do I want to spend time with this? Because if I spend time with it, I'm voting for its existence. And then you start the hard journey of disconnecting from things that may seem tempting, but are not good for you. They're not good for your loved ones. They're not good for your community or for mm. society. And that's a really, cha- that's a big challenge we're all facing in our lives. Mm-hmm. I love, I know it's only one, one piece of three, but I, I'm really, really connecting to the preferred state piece of that definition. Because I think if I just, you know, to make it extremely practical, if I was to consider Instagram, um, what is my preferred state? Well, my preferred state is for Christina is to feel inspired, to be attentive, to be connected. And if using that platform in that moment is, you know, is the state that I'm in, then I'm probably using it in a really intentional and good way. But if it's pulling me into, you know, a a really different state of being, you know, comparing or being confused or whatever it might be, then that would be extremely clarifying. Right. And what's Instagram's preferred state? Clicking the sponsored ad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lots of time on screen, lots of clicks, lots of engagement. Right. So... There's a fundamental incompatibility with what you just shared with me. Thank you for sharing of your intentional preferred state with Instagram and their intentional preferred state. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean Instagram is evil. That just means it's going to be an uphill battle for you to effectively use Instagram to be the person you want to be, Christina, right? It's going to be an uphill battle. The forces all around you are going to be pushing you to being a different way than you want to be. That's a design problem. So helpful. I love this. Jay, you're amazing. This is such good <laughs> stuff. I love, I just, I just love the work you do. How, I want to know, how did you come into this line of work? How did you end up doing what you do? That's a, that's a fun story. So I have always been interested in mental health and psychology. I have some close family members who suffer from severe mental health issues. Um, I went to school uh, originally for science because I have a Indian parents who wanted me to do a hard science, but eventually followed my authentic intention to go into psychology. And late in my psychology education, I found this field of what at the time we were calling human factors or usability. I got really interested in the psychology of how people interact with things, where, you know, Don Norman's book would be par for the course in this world. So I spent you know, three or four years working for a consultancy in Montreal um, called Eucentric under these two lovely um, French women, Joelle and Christelle. Great introduction to the working world. They were such awesome mentors and leaders for me. And in that, I, you know, working as a consultant, I was working for whoever, you know, would pay. And so I did some projects for startups. I did a project for Cirque du Soleil, for the, uh, you know, Canadian Institute of Health Information, which is sort of like a, you know, health data and statistics and uh, something for the United Nations and like yellow pages and all kinds of stuff. And at some point I was offered a promotion and I had this moment of pause where I was like, I don't know if I really want 
this promotion. And it put me into this whole reflective state. I didn't have the words for it at the time, but I realized that some of this work is really energizing for me. And some of it is super draining. And I didn't know what the difference was, but I kind of had a sense then. And what I now have the language for was that I had this understanding that if I'm going to design something, that means I'm pushing my values upon other people, right? Mm. When people interact with something I design. So I need to be working on projects that align with the world that I want to see. You know, when I'm working on an insurance company and trying to get them to sell more insurance and we're using all these patterns and trying to understand people so that we can manipulate them into buying insurance, that's not the world I really wanted to see. Mm. And so I decided to quit that job and I went to graduate school. And my whole idea was, I'm going to explore what happens if I apply these newfound skills and design to a very value-aligned project. And so that deep passion for mental health arose. And at the time, I was starting to discover mindfulness. And long story short, I created an academic project called Sonic Cradle, which people looked at me like I was crazy when I originally pitched. I actually got, I presented at John Hopkins Society for Literature, Science, and Art. I'll never forget this. I was halfway through giving a talk about this technology I had created for meditation and, and this, this sort of older kind of humanities type scholar just interrupted my presentation and it, and, and it called me a, a mad scientist and <laughs> accused me of, of mixing worlds that shouldn't be mixed, that spirituality has no place in scientific discourse. Wow. I was like, a, I was a young grad, so I was like really taken aback. But then I remember when I saw other people kind of scared of this person, I realized, okay, a lot of these people are with me that this is not okay. Because like, I hadn't been to a lot of conferences like that. I was like, is this normal that people just yell at the speaker? But anyway, uh, long story short, um, the tune changed. People started to look at me and look at that work differently. When I started to get uh, attention for this project, I started to get publications and I was able to exhibit it at some amazing conferences around the world. And originally started that project asking whether technology could actually support mindfulness and we could actually build bridges to the very presence of mind that we are obscuring with the way we think about technology. And that experience really, you know, changed the trajectory of my career. Um, I came out of academic work really passionate about the mission that you hear me talking about, about mindful technology and technology in pursuit of personal transformation and attention activism and all this stuff really came out of that transformative couple of years. That was like 2010 to 2012 or so. So that was like before we had meditation apps and all that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. So interesting. And to hear about your personal connection, you know, with mental health within your own family, I can definitely relate to that motivation within my own family as well. And um, to to think that it was only 10 years ago that you would have gotten such an aggressive, right, such an aggressive <laughs> response. It's kind yeah. of mind bending a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that guy was a bit of a kook, you know, not to be judgmental. Yeah. But I definitely like across, you know, my fellow students in in the grad school I was at and the professors and the academia, there was a couple of really out there thinkers who just happened to be my supervisors. Um, but generally, there was a quite a skeptical sense that the answer to my question was yes. 
right? The question again being, can technology, which in its current incarnation is hyper-distracting us, can technology experientially introduce us to the clarity and presence that we associate with mindfulness? And yeah, I just feel like, you know, if you think about like the 1600s and the Royal Academy of Sciences and think about Charles Babbage, the inventor of the computer, these are people who asked very provocative questions. And they died before ever realizing that the question they asked was absolutely true and completely transforming the world. Mm. And, you know, I just feel really lucky with the pace of things that like in, in a span of 10 years, I have watched general like puzzlement at the kind of work I was doing and skepticism into the idea that like most people have tried a meditation app. <laughs> it's just kind of like, you know, most people would be a lot more open to the idea that technology could somehow help with mindfulness. But like I said earlier, I still feel like we're in a very superficial place for the for the depth mm-hmm. that I'm putting into this question. I think I am really still iteratively seeking for something closer to the powerful depth of transformation that you see when you experience someone who really has de- dedicated their life to meditation. And we actually see changes in their brain, um, you know, different responses to pain, different levels of default activation in key regions of the brain responsible for, you know, focused attention, for sensory clarity, for compassion and altruism. And, you know, I just believe that technology done with these values at heart, if you think about all the incredible things that we've done with technology for other values like productivity and organization and efficiency, if you imagine equivalently sophisticated technology where the value is altruism, for example, what would that world look like? Or the values compassion, what would that world look like as opposed to, you know, competition, right? Or the value is presence, what would that world look like? And, you know, that's the world I want to see. I'd like to tell you about a wonderful tool developed by a supporter of the JomoCast. We've talked a lot about how social media and mobile apps are designed on purpose to be habit-forming, distracting, and to let us thoughtlessly lose hours of our day. Part of cultivating intentional tech use means taking control back from influences like this and not letting them get in the way of what really matters. The Freedom app works across all your devices at once. Mac, Android, anything you've got, freeing you from the distractions that you choose. You can block time-wasting sites and apps or the entire internet for a deeply productive, focused session. Freedom gives you complete control of how much help you need and when. With a premium Freedom subscription, you can schedule daily or weekly sessions across specific sites, apps, and devices. Freedom users report regaining about two and a half hours of productive time every single day. Wow. Because I believe in never advocating something I don't value myself, I've been using Freedom and had a wonderful first experience with it. After choosing to block all distracting apps, I later tried opening Facebook and got the message, you are free, do what matters. I can't think of any purer expression of Jomo than that. Give Freedom a try with a special JomoCast discount. Install and upgrade to a premium yearly or forever plan for 40% off with code JOMO, J-O-M-O. 
Find out more at freedom.to slash JOMO. That's freedom.to slash JOMO. I encourage you to give freedom a try. For someone that's listening today and they want to take the next right step towards having a mindfulness practice and are open to using technology to do that, what would you say to them? Is it the Healthy Minds Project you're currently working on? I mean, I think that's a great program, but I, I wouldn't just make a clear recommendation like that. I think I would, I would say acknowledge that this is your path and you have to go out there and try to find the resources that might inspire you. And not all of them are going to work so well. And some of them are going to feel really not adapted and woo-woo and you're going to be pretty skeptical. Or if you're into woo-woo, some of them are going to feel really dry. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? So, you know, I think one of the key framings is to remember that you are uh, free to try many different things. And if you talk to people that have found some kind of solace in these paths, you'll find that they've tried, you know, they often don't talk about the things that didn't work, but they often tried many things that didn't work. And that should be cause to not be disheartened if you, you know, download the Healthy Minds program and it's not for you. Or if you try Headspace and it's not for you, or if you try Muse and it's not for you, or you go to a yoga class or you go to a retreat, it's not for you. So just remember that that's one approach, right? And there's many, many approaches. And what you're trying to find is whatever works for you. I have a good friend who is a very reflective and contemplative person who actually just tried a bunch of meditation. Meditation wasn't at all for them, but he eventually found his rhythm with journaling, keeping a diary, Hmm. right? So I, I don't think you just have to try the Healthy Minds program and learn to meditate. Like I think there's a lot of different doors to the same room. And you really just need to be aware of what you're trying to find and be open to trying lots of different approaches and know that some of it's not going to resonate that well. And that's okay. I love that you're constantly pointing it back to our own self-awareness and understanding. Thank you for that answer. You focus a significant amount of effort towards attention activism. And I actually heard that term first from you. Maybe you coined it. As someone who works closely with product and experience designers, how do you feel we can reconcile the wellness needs of humans with concepts like the attention economy? And maybe I'll ask it a different way. Will the model of the attention economy have to die before digital market forces can have a healthy relationship with their consumers? And we talked about that already a little bit in terms of values, but does something need to die in order for us to actually live well online? I think the attention economy has to transform or die. In other words, the way it's currently operating is not sustainable. So I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with an organization or even a political party, which is a charged statement in today's world, but any or even a YouTube creator or anything like that trying to get the attention of people. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But the level of competition and the level of aggressive tactics being used by the platforms today have turned what could be a much softer, healthier conversation into an aggressive competition that is not sustainable. So either 
we have to transform the values of our very society where we are not aggressively seeking to step on each other for our own reputations and our own success. And I say we as in individuals, but also businesses and organizations and political parties. Mm-hmm. Either we have to completely fundamentally undermine that force in our society and then have a healthy attention economy. Or if we feel like it's impossible to remove the fundamental inherent competitive nature, uh, aggressive competitive nature of humankind, then I think we have to kill the attention economy because these forces mapped into the back door into our minds is destroying our ability to function as individuals, as families, as communities, as nation states. We're, we're seeing it hit at all levels, and it's very dangerous. Yeah. You've watched The Social Dilemma? I have. What did you think? Let's go back to 2015, where I'm starting to recognize the attention activism. I think I first wrote about it in 2015 or 2016. And I'm disconnecting from my social media. I am erasing apps from my phone. I've removed the internet from my bedroom. And I'm also like ranting at my my friends and family. And I, you know, I don't think that was great, a great strategy, but I just felt like something was happening. And as a designer, I had a very close look at it. Mm-hmm. And I felt the need to tell people. And then when I saw someone I cared about glued to their phone, I was just like, what are you doing? You know, I couldn't, I didn't know how to handle it. But I was generally met with a lot, like the look that I got in 2015, a lot of the time is probably the same look that you'd expect to get if you were talking about like UFOs or (laughs) like the moon landing being a fake or you know what I mean? Like I can relate 100% because my book came out in 2015. And I will just say that it's not just the UFO look. It is like people would get like quite aggressive when you would suggest that they might have an addiction to their device. Like people in my experience, they got really defensive. Was that true for you? Yes, that's right. Like it was this sense of like that I'm wearing that I'm talking to them wearing a tinfoil hat. And they're like, stop trying to just take this thing that I like away from me. I like my phone, you know, and it's like, stop trying to make me feel guilty. And I, I, I do believe that actually trying to make them feel guilty is not a great strategy. And that is exactly the addendum that I've been writing to the social dilemma, which I'm going to send to my newsletter soon. But I am thrilled I was thrilled to watch this movie. I was just the the idea that in five years, this conversation has become so mainstream and that from the work of Tristan Harris and the Center for Humane Technology, that they have done such an incredible job of the awareness piece that so many people are now aware of these issues. There were moments in, in, in the documentary where I was just in awe of the thoroughness of it because they covered, you know, how it's impacting mental health. They covered the family relationship piece. They talked about big tech's business models. They talked about AI and machine learning, and they talked about democracy and politics, all in this 90-minute documentary. Like, I was really excited about it. But at the end of it, I had this one thing that I wish so hard that they had put at the end and they didn't, which is the fact that everyone is going to walk away from this documentary feeling guilty and scared. So scared. Everyone's scared. so scared and so guilty And I understand why, because I've been following this field for a long time, and Tristan and the center have done just incredible work on advocacy. You know, Tristan gave a Senate testimony in the U.S. They're meeting with big tech leaders. And so the tone they take is for leadership and regulation. 
right. and ethics. But this is Netflix. This isn't a Senate testimony. These are people sitting in their living room that are now fearful and guilty and probably pointing at each other and accusing each other like, hey, honey, you watched the documentary, okay? I see you on your phone. And it's just not the right emotion. I know this from someone who teaches meditation mm-hmm. that you know, judging yourself for forgetting to meditate is the antithesis of building a strong and, and, and powerful meditation practice, right? Right. Like you need to do it with love. And if you talk to, you know, have family and friends in the addiction field, like drug addiction, like an intervention for someone who's addicted to drugs, you don't get in a room and judge them and criticize them. It's the complete opposite. You love them. You make it clear that you love them and that you, you are all in agreement that we're noticing something that you might need to be aware of. And we're doing this because we love you. Hmm. And so my addendum to the social dilemma is that we are not lemmings walking off cliffs. Yes, technology companies and the attention economy are pointing us in directions and tricking us often, manipulating us in directions that we do not want to go. But the most powerful and sophisticated technology in this equation is still between your ears and branching out through your body. Mm. And you have the ability to not follow that lead. But like we talked about nutrition and you can imagine exercise, it's not easy. It's an uphill battle. But you have that ability and you have to recognize that that's not an easy battle. It's going to take a while. You're going to fall off the wagon. You're going to notice yourself getting addicted to your phone again. It's all going to happen. But you don't have to feel guilty about it because it's the long tail. And those of us who are in the field, if I can be the spokesperson of my fellow attention activists, we're working on on getting you reinforcements and trying to reduce the pressure. But we're not there yet. So you need to hold your ground. Mm. And there's so much you can do in your daily life. And you can do it with a smile. And you can do it out of love for yourself, out of love for your family out of inspiration and optimism about what the world can be. And I just, I don't know, everything, every bone in my body is that this is how change happens. You know, if you think about the civil rights movement in the US, like Martin Luther King wasn't up there hating on white people, right? He was sharing a message of hope and inspiration and a vision for what the world could be. And I just feel like our friends at The Social Dilemma were missing that last 15 minutes, Mm. that last 20 minutes of what the world could be like and how you might actually effectively engage that with love in your heart and trying to do that in your life and and not judging yourself and not feeling guilty and not being terrified. So anyway, I, I've got a bunch of ideas that I'm writing on this right now, so it's still kind of fresh for me, but I, I can't stress enough that I was so excited about this movie and I'm so happy about it and I'm so glad awareness is going and I'm in awe and admiration of the work of all the people that were behind that movie. And I don't think of this as a criticism and more as just an addendum from my unique experience. I took a course from Jay, you guys, a technology and mindfulness mm-hmm. course um, at U of T. And there's a philosopher from the University of Montana named Albert Borgman. And he talks about how for him with technology is less about limiting it as it is about creating the positive conditions where other engagements thrive and flourish. And as I hear you talking about your addendum to the social dilemma, I'm thinking about exactly that. Like, what are the positive conditions we can create for, you know, a just society, for a loving neighborhood, for loving marriages and, 
you know, families, what does that, what would that look like? And I think that we do need to, on a daily basis, maybe that's the meditation practice, you know, that we can begin now is to daily envision what the world might look like if those other values were driving the design of our everyday lives. And I just, I love so much the work you're doing, Jay. Um, I'm going to be sharing all of the links so you can all connect with his work. But do you have any last ideas or thoughts you'd like to share before we close out today? Mm. I think the way we talk about media and technology has, has forgotten the promise of media and technology and the potential because we tend to just view the way things are as the way they have to be. But in fact, it's just not true. These are the early days of this technosphere, this ecosystem that we're living in. And this pandemic is making it even more beautiful to see just how much we can connect with each other through these technologies. And I personally have the privilege to work with and follow, you know, 10 to 50 to 100 organizations that are making waves, creating incredible technologies in service of values like empathy and mindfulness and altruism and these sort of things from Clouds Over Sidra, which is the VR experience that allows you to live in the world of a Syrian refugee that builds incredible empathy that this experience actually made me cry and has led to massive increases in donations mm. to support organizations to um, Daily Aloha, which is a social media that doesn't try to command your attention. It's an anonymous, positive, uplifting share that takes a few minutes a day to the Healthy Minds program, which are the, some of the world's leading neuroscientists in emotion and mindfulness who have founded a nonprofit outside of their academic laboratory to create tools for everyday life, but they're grounded in such integrity, right? Um, all the way to, um, you know, I've recently started working with an organization called True Love that are working on emotionally conscious AI and trying to reimagine what the experience of interacting with like really cutting edge new technology could be like if it was sensitive and aware of your emotions and its explicit incentive was to help you regulate your emotional state. Wow. You know, there's so much inspiring, incredible work out there that, you know, you don't see when you watch The Social Dilemma or when you read the fear-mongering articles about how um, Facebook is ruining our lives or whatever. But uh, yeah, there's so much to be inspired about, about what we could do with this technology now that we are aware of the issues of our first and second versions of how to use it. And uh, yeah, hold on to that vision. And when it comes down, when it comes down to your daily life, I think it's important to remember, and this is like maybe if there was like a, if I could edit in a clip of you and I talking at the end of the social dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think what I would say is a lot of this film has made it seem like the battleground here is in the boardrooms of big tech companies, in the Senate, and the, you know, House of Commons and the Congress and the political buildings. But actually, the battleground is in the seemingly mundane moments of your daily life when you catch yourself looking at your phone instead of playing with your kids or watching Netflix for four hours and then getting up and feeling really bad about yourself. 
these subtle moments are actually the battleground. And I believe personally, and this is my thesis around attention activism, that the more of us that can stand up to these forces in our daily lives, that the change will come from within each of us. And that the more of us are aware of these issues, watching incredible, you know, feces like the social dilemma, and then taking action in our daily lives and controlling and, and learning to regulate our attention and to, to direct that attention to the positive, to the beautiful, to the inspirational of each other and ourselves and, and our communities and our potential. I think that's how change is going to happen. So there's sort of a message of empowerment that the victim mentality that these big machinery are just pushing us around like peons and there's nothing we can do is at best not that helpful and at worst a really dangerous excuse to not do anything. Right. But in fact, there is something you can do, which is to be present for yourself and be present for the people you care about and use technology to have authentic connection and support organizations that are trying to build a new world that doesn't suffer from these issues. So there is something you can do right now. As soon as this podcast ends, right now there is something you can do, which is take a breath, go for a walk, leave your phone at home, enjoy the trees and the sun. On one hand, there's something about your mental health and well-being in that walk. On another hand, there's probably something about seeing the world and purpose and spirituality. And, and what I'm saying is there's a third hand, <laughs> which is that you are doing a small drop in the ocean of what we all need to be doing to collectively transform this society, which we just made up and we can make up in a different way if we're all on board. Jay, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the JomoCast. Learn more about our guests in the show notes and by visiting JomoCast.com. And remember to subscribe to the JomoCast to be the first to hear our latest episodes. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're interested in helping us keep these raw, vulnerable conversations going, leave us a five-star review or share today's podcast with your friends. I hope the rest of your day brings you peace and that you embrace the joy of missing out.